Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Christina Dahl. Even after two years, as I'm no expert, I still can't ass clap. <laughs> that and more. But before that, uh, do you want a New Year's resolution <laughs> that you can actually keep? Well, I'll tell you something. You can stop going to the post office and keep it that way you know, to send your letters and packages. Because you don't have to. You can save time and money this year by using Stamps.com instead. I've been using Stamps.com. It's probably eight years now that we've been doing it. We've been using it for both Risk and our school, the Story Studio, and we've always loved it. It's always just been so convenient, and it's it's kind of a no-brainer. If you own a small business, I don't know what you would be thinking not to be using stamps.com. You know, I find myself mailing a lot of stuff just outside of my work life as well. And there's enough errands to run and lines to wait in as it is. So cutting out that trip to the post office is super, super helpful. Stamps.com brings all of the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service to your own computer. It's faster and more convenient as a way to get your postage. You, you simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it, and the mail carrier picks it up. It also saves you money. With Stamps.com, you get discounted postage rates that you can't even get. 
at the post office. Not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters that so many businesses use. And there's no equipment to lease, no long-term commitments. Right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. So start the new year off right. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the new Master Sounds behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Adjustments. I'm adjusting quite a bit right now. I'm still... Well, I'm pretty much over the jet lag now. I'm back from Thailand. I was there for about 12 days. And then, of course, there were the several days of flying as well. It was an absolutely fascinating, sometimes spiritual, and often completely debaucherous (laughs) time over there. Man, what an amazing place. It's just so good to travel completely outside, to be like taking the fish out of the fishbowl and completely discombobulating yourself a little bit and uh, just seeing what happens. It can be frightening and uh, it can just be, I don't know, it can really just stir up lot of emotions in you oh my god i did some crying over there i did some praying and uh, a lot of laughing and a lot of uh, <clears throat> crazy stuff as well but i'm so glad to be back it is really amazing how this show is such an anchor i think a lot of fans feel the same way i do about coming back to this show, to reconnect and go through experiences being shared together. And it just means so much to me to have the anchor of creating this show in my life. I don't don't know what else to say. And don't forget, we just put out a ton of fabulous new material via Amazon Originals. So there's four big new stories. If you go to amazon.com slash this can't be happening, there is a ton of new material for you. 
uh, this storytelling series we did over there at Amazon. Uh, there's a story by me called The Two Henrys. You can listen to them and or read them on your Kindle or read and listen at the same time. People are loving these stories, and a lot of people seem to be coming to them who have never heard of Risk before, too. That's exciting. So listen, leave a review there for your favorite stories as well, because that makes a big impression. Okay, like I said, today's episode is called Adjustments. We're going to hear three stories from three totally different cities that were recorded last year. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Christina Dahl, a beautiful story that she shared with us when we were last in Minneapolis. But we're going to start with David Crabb, a favorite of ours, a story that he shared several months back in Los Angeles. Here he is now with a story we call... Straight Flush. So, uh, how many of you guys know what Crohn's disease is? Because let's go out on a on a positive. Um, so I've had Crohn's disease uh, for a, a very long time now, and um, if you don't know what it is, it is an autoimmune disease that mainly affects uh, your guts. Uh, if you want comedy gold or you're a performer, it's fun to have because shit's funny, and you do a lot of it with Crohn's disease. Um, Crohn's disease sort of turns everything from here to here into, like, it's the space between the two pods Jeff Goldblum has in the fly. That's what your digestive tract is. Any nightmare combination of something uncomfortable and terrible terrifying can happen within you. Um, for many, many years, I waited. I worked in the service industry. I bartended. And uh, a few years ago, my Crohn's got so bad that I, I lived on the bathroom. I'm, and when you have Crohn's and you really need to go to the bathroom, it can be like, you know, like clocking out for lunch. Like you're gone for just a little bit. Um, it's a very sort of state snake handle, speaking tongues, like malama shalama. Like it's a very, it's a process. <laughs> Um, and I lost a lot of weight. I got down to like 115 pounds. I'm like 155 now. Thank you. And um, I remember when that happened, I was like really skinny. I had these like Johnny Depp cheekbones. And people were like, you look great. And I was like, I'm dying. Um, <laughs> and, and right as I was really, really getting sick, I started to work more with a theater company in New York. And I started to do a lot of storytelling and teaching storytelling. So I was able to sort of cut back on like service jobs, which were hard to keep because of my body. It's very hard to work on the floor for eight, nine hours when you like live in a bathroom, right? You're like, can you watch my tables for two years? You know, what's happening? <laughs> so, um, so I'd quit for a few months. And then one day uh, um, I was coming up out of a flare up. I was starting to feel a little bit better, but not all the way back. And my friend Maria called, she runs a catering company. And she says, David, I know that you don't want to do any catering jobs for a while, but I have one and I really think you want to do it. And immediately I knew what she meant because she was the cook for my favorite celebrity of all time, Whoopi Goldberg. And I knew that she was calling to ask me to cater Whoopi Goldberg's holiday party in New Jersey at her m m m m mansion So 
Now, when I say that I love Whoopi Goldberg, um, I fell in love with Whoopi Goldberg when I was like maybe like eight or nine years old. Um, if you don't know, Whoopi Goldberg became famous um, for doing this amazing solo show called Whoopi with an exclamation point on HBO. Um, it was her playing five different characters, going through all sorts of different, and it was a really beautiful show because it was really, really funny, like Saturday Night Live, which I loved as a kid, but then it also had these like really beautiful contemplative moments. And it, it really was one of the first times that I saw someone do a thing that was funny, but that also made me feel and made me be like, I want to do that, you know? And it also made me want to move to New York where it was filmed. So I've always loved her. I kept up with her over the years. I watched all the movies, even the bad ones, even like, you know, like Burglar, you know what I mean? Um, um, when I was bartending in New York, I would wake up really late just in time for The View, and that was how I spent, like, you know, I had my breakfast and listened to Whoopi, like, ringlead shit. So, like, I really, really loved her, and I knew I had to do it regardless of how sick I was. So I said, yes, I'll do it. So cut to, is a few days later, uh, we're driving with a catering company, which is like five or six people up to her mansion. It's this beautiful, beautiful mansion. And we get there, and we go in, and I'm like really nervous about meeting her. I'm really freaking out. I'm thinking like, I know what I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say, you know, Mrs. Goldberg, I'm also a solo artist. I do a lot of character work, and I also do some memoir. And I really want you to, like, I have the whole thing. Like, I know it's gonna work. And she's gonna be like, you, I love you. Here's money and a career. Like, I see it all, like, the way it's gonna happen, you know? And so we're, we're there, and we're unloading in the kitchen. We're all in our, like, you know, catering blacks. And we're there for a few minutes, and uh, it's a really cool house. She's got, like, just really cool stuff. She collects a lot of antiques. And at one point, <laughs> the kitchen door swings open, and it's Whoopi. Uh, she's dressed, as she always is, like a judge, inexplicably. Uh, you know, like a big sort of swingy smock with some, like, fabulous shoes you can barely see that are probably, like, $8,000 under there. Um, wearing her little, like, John Lennon uh, spectacles. Um, she comes in. She's like, how are y'all doing, babies? And I'm like, I love you. I'm not. I, I reel it in. And I'm just like, mm, I'm good. I'm casual about everything. Um, and uh, the head of the catering company introduces me, and I shake her hand, and, you know, everyone's chopping celery and preparing cheese plates. And this is when I knew that I, I actually really, really loved Whoopi Goldberg as a person. She pulled out a pack of Marlboro Reds, took one out, and then turned on the burner on her oven, held her braids up out of that shit, and lit it. And I was like, I fucking love you. You're my people. Uh, let's talk. So she hangs out with us, and she hangs out for 30 minutes, asking us, like, really, like, her caterers, like, what are you doing? What do you do? Do you write? Do you make? And we're, like, all kind of talking to her, and it's really, really great. And then at one point, then the party starts, right? So the party starts, people are coming. Wilby Goldberg goes back out on the floor. Now, the moment she leaves the kitchen, I have, like, a nervous anxiety, and then I realize, oh, it's nervous anxiety, but it's also my dark passenger. Um, my Crohn's is coming. I need a break sometime very soon, um, but there's a lot of cheese to slice. So um, I'm dealing with that, but there's people on the floor. People are coming in. I recognize all these guests. There's people from soap operas. There's some journalists. There's like other celebrities I don't remember. At one point, I see Marlo Thomas. I'm like, that girl. Like, it's all just like amazing, right? And it's cool because as I'm passing around stuff, like, I'll come up to like where Whoopi's talking to two people, and she'll like pull me in and be like, David, why don't you? And I'll like talk to people, like holding brioche. It's like very surreal. She's treating me like a real person. And then the crazy thing happens where Santa Claus arrives. It's a Christmas party, so what happens is she actually has the Santa from Macy's with the real beard, the real thing, and he pulls up in the driveway in a sleigh pulled, I swear to God, by reindeers or horses outfitted by really top-notch Lucasfilm prosthetic people. I don't know what the things are pulling it, but they're like reindeers. The children who are at the party, because all these children are there, they run out, and you know, you always think when you're little you believe in Santa and you see it, but watching these kids come back from this, they're like broken people. Like, like it's not like a joyful, it's like, I fucking saw Santa, man. Like, it's really real. Like, there's reindeers and shit. Like, they're holding, like, a train. Like, I don't, I just, I need to sit down. Like, a four-year-old, you know? Like, they're fucked up. 
They're like, I, no, that, that is Santa. Like, there, no mall Santa's going to work after this. Do you know what I'm saying? So that's happening, and it's so funny to see. And I'm, like, passing stuff around. And at one point, like, I'm thinking, I need to find the bathroom soon. And I feel a tap on my shoulder, and I turn around, and it's Phil Donahue. Uh, Phil Donahue, the man that introduced me to drag queens and DNA cheek swabs. I love him. Like, he is his talk show in the 80s. I love him so much. And I'm like, well, hello, Mr. Donahue. And then he's like, can you help me find a bathroom? And he's not saying it with urgency, but enough urgency that I really feel connected to him immediately. Like, I, I understand your plight. Let me help you. Now, I tell him I'm going to help him, and then I realize I don't know where the bathroom is besides the one downstairs in the basement that's where the washer and dryer are and like you know where like the maid stuff and the cleaning supplies so I'm taking Phil Donahue down there the party's getting really crowded they're like where are you going I'm like I'll be right back I go down there and in the room since we we um so unpacked our stuff I guess someone has taken all these white linens and white things out of the dryer and they're hung on these like threads on the ceiling across the room so I'm like going through them I'm still holding a plate of like cheese I'm moving fabric and Phil Donahue's behind me he's like where are you taking me and I'm like I swear there's a toilet in here um, and he's very confused, but he's going along with it. And then, like, I finally found the bathroom door, and I realized, this is so horrible. I'm taking, like, Phil Donahue in this beautiful mansion to, like, the service toilet in the basement. <laughs> and I open the door to it, and this toilet that looks like something from the movie Tron goes, and, like, the toilet lid lifts, and, like, a panel lights up. It's like, what? And he's like, what is this? And I'm like, you got me, Phil. Uh, but I think you can take a dump here. I don't say that, but I'm thinking it, right? So he goes into the bathroom, and I'm like, bye. And I shut the door, and I run upstairs. I'm catering, 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 catering. And after about two more hours, everyone starts to peel away, and they leave. And I still haven't gotten to talk to Whoopi. I keep, like, making eyes at her, and she, like, grins at me over those little you know, John Lennon glasses. And we're putting stuff away. Almost everyone's gone. And I'm like, oh my God, I have to do it now. I have to do it now. I'm dying inside. So I run downstairs to the bathroom. And I go inside. I open the door. And the toilet greets me. Uh, and I shut the door. And I sit down. And it is everything I need it to be. There's like, you know, speaking in tongues. It's like amazing and painful and terrible. And it's everything a crone's poop should be. I really hope you're enjoying this part of the story. Um, and then after however amount of time, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I think I'm done. And I need to flush this toilet. And I look, and there's, the tank is like a clean space cylinder. There's no, there's, no, there's no flusher on it. And I look, and on the wall, there's like a panel of lights and buttons. And I'm kind of looking at all of them. And I'm like, well, I just need to flush it. I bet this blue swirly shape will do it. And I push the shape, and I get this blast of cold water right up my asshole. Just like, like a like cat. It's like, it's vicious, you know? And I'm like, oh, Miss Goldberg. Um, and I, and the thing is, it doesn't stop. Like, I'm kind of, like, reorienting my ass on the toilet to sort of just get, but all I'm doing is getting, like, a clean everywhere, like a cheek blast, you know? And then I start looking, and I push that button again to turn it off, and it doesn't quit. I'm like, okay, there's got to be something to, like, to quit this. So then I see, like, a red button with waves, and I push it. And then all at once, I get this, like, it's like, brrr, and there's, like, a hot blast of air. It's like a, it's like a hand dryer. It's like one of the Dyson hand dryers. But it's, like, turned up, up in my ass, and it's, like, so hot. And I'm like, fuck, what is this? I still have the cold water blasting. I look at the button. The, the panel, there's, like, a black button. It seems like a square, but it also looks like a pause on an old VCR and I push it and then I get some kind of front blast. It's water. I think it's for women. I don't know. I don't have anything there. It's like a taint rinse. It is blasting at me and then I punch and then I just become like dumb Homer Simpson. I'm just kind of mashing my hands, you know, on all the buttons and it's like 
like under me. It's just so loud. And I'm like, oh my God, because what I want to do is get up because I'm like hot, I'm cold, I'm rinsed, my balls hurt. Like it's not a good thing that's happening. And I don't know what to do um, because I just want to like stop it. But if I get up, I'm like literally my ass is the seal of a storm in a teacup. Like I don't know what damage I will do to the service toilet. It's like, I mean, I left a nightmare in there, you know? And I don't know what to do. I'm like looking at the thing and as I'm looking at the panel, I hear a honk and I'm like, oh my God, it's like the catering people. I've been here like riding this toilet horse for so long at this point that they're like, where are you, you know? And I look and I look and you know how like people talk about when they're like in a car accident? They have that moment where everything just seems like real still. Like they're okay with what happens. Like I might die. I have that moment and I look at the panel and right in the middle of this grid of like 25 buttons, the only button in white letters that is a different color is, says flush. It just it says it right there. And I, I push the button and all at once, it's like even the toilet's tired. It's like, whoa, like it sucks so much. It flushes with such an intensity. It, uh, it, it's, yeah, it's a lot. Um, like, I'm like, oh, it's going to take parts out of me. Like, it's very intense the way it flushes. And then, like, I, 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 I wait, and the toilet's no, it's not growling or vibrating. There's no hot or cold rinse. And I stand up, and I have a, just a miraculously clean butt. I've never had a cleaner, cleaner butt cheeks in my life. And uh, I hear the honk again, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's the people. So I, I get my stuff. I know the catering crew's waiting for me, and I, like, get dressed, and I'm, like, freaking out. And I'm in, like, plain clothes, and I run up the stairs. And when I come into the kitchen, there's no one at the party anymore. And I look at the end of this long, long kitchen, and there's a breakfast nook with stained glass. And the end, it's just three people. It's Whoopi Goldberg, her daughter, and her granddaughter. Three generations of Goldbergs. And I'm standing there with, like, my little bag and my normal clothes. I'm not in my catering clothes anymore. And Whoopi Goldberg just to me, she goes, baby, come on over. And I'm like, okay. And I feel myself. And you know that scene in Poltergeist where Joe Beth Williams runs, like, Caroline? And the hallway gets so long. Like, that's how I feel, like, ah! And I'm like walking towards her and I get to her and she hugs me and she smells everything, like everything that amazing she should. There's like cinnamon and roses and like vanilla and like she's really hugging me. She's doing like, you know when you re- someone really loves you and they pump you a little bit when they hug you? Do you know what I'm talking about? She's doing that and I'm like, oh my God, you're so amazing. And she releases me and she looks right in my eyes. I'm like, this is the moment. This is where I'm going to tell her like, I love you so much. Thank you for inspiring me. Blah, 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 blah. But then right as I'm going to talk, I hear the, uh, the honk outside one more time and I just say, I just want you to know you're an inspiration to me and you have very complex toilets. And I run away. I run, I just run out. <laughs> I run out of her kitchen and I jump in the car and we drive away. Um, I saw Whoopi Goldberg a few other times that uh, after that I would go to her uh, house and help with things. And she never brought up the great toilet incident of 2011. But um, every time I see her, she's really kind and she hugs me every time I saw her and she would look at me and she'd wink. And I always thought that she was winking at me to let me know she knows how much I desperately love her toilets. Thank you, guys. Luxury bidet toilet seat. The design is like nothing else on the market. Fresh, aerated water flows through the dual nozzle system. Each nozzle is adjustable to one of seven positions. Posterior and feminine washes. Ranging from a narrow, concentrated stream to a wide, gentle spray. It went through. 
still I never knew just what it was And I guess I never will And when you sit when you do And when it stops and whirl When it stands still I never knew just what it was And I guess I never will In 2008, I was 23 years old, and I was going to the University of Minnesota, and I was dreaming of being a doctor someday. I lived with my boyfriend, Mark, and I had this great job at a health-based nonprofit doing mostly desk work. I'd had some health issues most of my life, and I'd always joked that I'm just a delicate little daisy, but it started progressing really rapidly. My joints hurt all of the time. I had these terrible migraines. I had these bouts of insomnia, and, and my stomach hurt all the time, and, and I just felt so foggy and slow. Every morning I'd wake up, and before I'd even move, I'd feel this dull, warm ache. And it moved all over my body, but it was worse deep in my hips. It would take time for me to motivate myself to sit up and swing my legs over the side of the bed because those first few steps were the worst. I felt like the tin man. You know, nothing wanted to move. And when I would stand on my legs for the first time, it just felt unnatural and unsteady. I felt raw that's really the best way to describe it. I always felt raw. Even sometimes my soft cotton sheets against my skin hurt. It's like every neuron in my body was cranked up. But my test results always came back normal. And I looked fine. And I wasn't really sure if anyone even believed me. And Honestly, I was doubting myself, too. I was sitting in my Grammy's smoky apartment, and she takes a long drag from her cigarette, and I can feel her eyes burning a hole in my head. <sighs> Christina, I know what you need. What? You need a walker. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I got punched in the chest. I'm in my early 20s. Yes, Grandma, and I'll take that walker and I'll hobble to the edge of the nearest cliff and then the walker and I can jump over together. <laughs> and she laughs and she wanders off and she comes back and she hands me my grandpa's old cane. Well, at least try this. And I do, and it makes an immense difference in my mobility. And so, like everything else, I have to accept it. In 2010, at 25 years old, I was taking Vicodin every morning to get up and amitriptyline every night to go to sleep. Every night before bed, I would fill up my glass of water and I would put it at the edge of my bed, or my nightstand, along with all my little bottles of pills. And I would set my alarm to 30 minutes before I actually had to move so that I could take them and they would have time to kick in. Most days... <laughs> It was hard to get my eyes to focus on the same thing. I had to drop out of school. 
my boyfriend dumped me. I pulled my retirement savings, and when that ran out, I moved into my parents' basement. And I took a picture of myself at this time just to see who I am now. And I see, you know, this young woman who's, you know, gained a lot of weight, and, and I have this, you know, greasy hair in a bun. And I have this white summer top on that doesn't fit because nothing fits this body anymore. And even if I could afford it, I wouldn't buy clothes for it. And so I deleted it, and I thought to myself, I wish I could just disappear too. I tried to get into the Mayo Clinic, but they were too busy working on bigger, harder problems like erectile dysfunction. <laughs> so I made an appointment with a doctor in Nowhere, Minnesota, who specialized in chronic illnesses. My mother packs snacks and bottles of water, and she drives me the two hours to his clinic. He had me take some tests I'd never taken before. And then he pulls his rolly chair right up in front of me, so he's looking at me dead in the eyes. Christina, I've been looking over your results. It looks like you have late-stage Lyme disease. Lyme disease is a full-body bacterial infection, and it's curable, but not easily. Having an answer felt so personally affirming. And then they put the pick line into my arm. I started three and a half years of hardcore antibiotic therapy. And the pick line finally showed the people around me that I really was sick. You know, hearing curable, curable. When I'd been told for years, this is just your life now, get used to it. I didn't realize it at first, it happened so slowly, but I started to get bored laying on the couch all day, and I wanted to volunteer or be out with my friends. And my physical therapy went from gentle stretches to weightlifting, and my bike rides went from around the block to 10 miles. And they pulled my pick line and ended treatment. So now, at 30 years old, I'm starting over. And you would think that would be so exciting, but it's completely overwhelming. I look around and I feel like everyone's making these huge strides in life, and I can't help but compare. And I feel like such a loser. I know I want my own apartment and I want to go back to school, but I still have some physical setbacks. I already have a lot of debt that I don't want to add to, and I don't have the energy to go to school and work full-time, so that's out. I was sitting at my good friend Dan's bar while he pours me another of my favorite cocktails, which is a cup of coffee with like a tablespoon of Bailey's and whipped cream. <laughs> And I'm pouring all my anxieties out on him. And he was shipping a stripper at the time. <laughs> and he cocks his head underneath his baseball hat. He narrows in and he says, you should dance. You'd make a lot of money. And you've got the body for it. <laughs> I hadn't even dated in five years. I'm not even sure I remember how to flirt. And you know, what if I did? What if, what if I went into audition and, 
And two weeks later, I'm in an alley snorting a fat line of coke off some guy's dick. (laughs) You know? Or what if that's just how everyone would see me from now on? I've always been pretty traditional. I I lost my virginity as an adult to the guy I thought I'd marry. You know, I've always been the Madonna. Can I be the whore? So I watched Showgirls twice. <laughs> Striptease. <laughs> a lot of YouTube videos and this really depressing documentary called Strippers, <laughs> which is now on Netflix. <laughs> and I started looking at myself in the mirror more and kind of posing and trying some dance moves and just wondering, could I? You know, what would that feel like? Could I really? I still wasn't sure if I'd actually audition, but I went to the lingerie sale rack at Macy's and I picked out this pink and purple bra and panty set. And then I carefully glued little pink rhinestones all over it so I'd fit in with all the other strippers. One day, I I just, I had a lot of energy and I felt good and I thought, this is it. Like, you're doing it today or you're not doing it. And so I shaved 75% of my body (laughs) and I put on every piece of makeup that I own. And I walked confidently into Patrick's, one of the highest rated clubs in the city. And it was mostly empty, but there were 10 of the most beautiful women I'd ever seen sitting at the bar. They looked like they could break out into a Victoria's Secret fashion show at any moment. And I looked down at my pink and purple sparkle bra and realized that I do not look like them. So they put me on stage to audition, and on the second song, I peel off my bra, quadrupling the number of people that have ever seen my breasts. (laughs) Once I walked off stage, a manager escorted me upstairs to fill out paperwork, and I could not believe they hired me. I laid my head down on my pillow that night, and I thought, there. Now I'm a 30-year-old stripper living in her parents' basement. (laughs) My first night of work was a really busy Friday night, and it was just a whirlwind. I just wobbled from one man's lap to the next on these teetering eight-inch heels. Margarita, this beautiful woman in red fishnet stockings, smiles at me the way you smile at someone who's in no way your competition. Your shoes are way too big. That's why you can't walk. (laughs) When I walked through my front door that night, I was so exhausted, and I was so sore, but I was so proud of myself. In one night, I'd made $800 towards going back to school. Usually when you hear about a woman who starts stripping, it's followed by, to support her habit. (laughs) But that's just not true for most of us. I enrolled in school and I started taking my nursing prereqs. And I paid cash for it. And eventually, I found a beautiful apartment in the city. This loft with floor-to-ceiling windows and sunlight for days. A couple years later, someone asked me, they were doing a podcast And they were interviewing experts in their field, and they asked me to be on it. Even after two years, I'm no expert. I still can't ass clap. 
<laughs> and I try. I practice. But I found my niche. And I've realized that I'm never going to be the Greta Garbo, the ridiculously insatiable, sexy sex pot. But I can be the cute Anne Margaret, who swears a little more. (laughs) (laughs) My body had become my biggest nemesis. And I just totally dissociated with it. And sometimes at work, when it's really slow, and the DJ plays one of my favorite songs, like Glass Animals, I'll watch myself in the mirror for a little bit, bathed in blue light and a pink garter belt on, slowly working down the stage. I realize, like, it's not a perfect body. But it finally feels like my body and I are on a team again. Thank you. Folks, if you go to the Amazon.com slash This Can't Be Happening, on my story, The Two Henrys, I talk about in the sixth grade, I attended my first party where there were no parents around, no adults to chaperone, and that was the night we played Spin the Bottle for the first time. That's a big part of the story, but what I don't tell in the story was that I got that party started that night in the sixth grade by putting this song on. <laughs> and dancing around like the Tasmanian devil, like a tornado of epileptic joy. <laughs> and was well known for my dancing skills ever thereafter. Anyway, this is, of course, Bob Seeger behind me now, and we just heard from Christina Dahl. Christina was a first time storyteller, she was a virgin to storytelling before sharing that story. And we do that. We workshop with people. We help people prepare. So that's why you should pitch us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. We'll help you out. Now, I got to give a little shout out 
to three of our newest Patreon patrons. They are Lena Dunn and Mary of Doom and Priscilla Peto or Pito. We have to thank them so much. We always give shout outs to people who donate $25 per month or more to us over at our Patreon. And there is so much extra content to be found over at our Patreon. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of posting a check in that I recorded in Bangkok, a very teary check-in that I recorded over there on the Patreon. Thinking about, you know, not all risks are a good idea, as this series amply demonstrates. But anyway, there's plenty of other check-ins there, and plenty of other bonus stories and all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff, so come be a patron of ours at patreon.com slash risk. Our final story on this week's episode is a real beauty. This was shared at a risk show the last time we were in Atlanta, and it is Mike Schatz telling this one here. You can find him on Instagram at Mike Schatz the Sheriff. <laughs> That's S C H A T Z. So here is Mike now with a story we call The Opener. I'm sick of following my dreams. I'm just going to ask them where they're going and hook up with them later. All right. If you're not familiar with that joke, that was from the late, great Mitch Hedberg. A stand-up comedian unlike any other stand-up comedian I had ever seen before. He was hilarious. He was bizarre. He saw the world through a different lens. He changed my life. And this is my eulogy for him, 13 years after he died. Ever since I can remember, I've wanted to be a comedian. When I was in fourth grade, I remember lying in, at the end of my parents' bed watching Bill Murray and John Belushi on Saturday Night Live. There are pictures of me wearing my pajamas agonizing people at my parents' cocktail parties doing impressions of Richard Nixon. I memorized albums, Steve Martin, Billy Crystal, George Carlin, Eddie Murphy. I would do the morning announcements. I'd write sketches at my high school and do these morning announcements. It was just the thing I loved. I studied comedy. I studied Bob Newhart's art of stammering. I studied Jack Benny and his timing. My mom, one Christmas, she gave me passes to go to the punchline. Imagine being in a really tiny club and seeing Jerry Seinfeld or seeing Tim Allen work through his act that would someday become home improvement. Oh, ow, ow, ow. It was amazing, and I loved it. And I saw every single comic that came into town. I'm going to do another Mitch joke. And when I do his voice, it means I'm transitioning to another part of my life. <laughs> I had an ant farm once. Them fellas didn't grow shit. 
After five years, five years of just drinking my way through college, I packed up my pickup truck and I moved to Chicago. The dream was to join Second City, which was the pathway to Saturday Night Live. And the pursuit of that dream for me lasted one week. One week. This is all pre-internet. The city was just too big for me. I didn't know my way around. I didn't know where to go. I was staying at my sister's place, and I, I never actually left the house. And this one thought kept sticking with me. It was, if I can't make it in Atlanta, how can I make it here? So I decided to stop chasing my dreams, and maybe I'd hook up with them later. I remember the day so distinctly because there was a lot of news going on. And again, there was no internet, but there was an eclipse. And I had read somewhere that you were supposed to watch an eclipse through a Pringles can. So I cut a hole in the bottom of a Pringles can and looked directly into the sun. <laughs> it was also the same day that they executed John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer who dressed as a clown. So as I was packing up my car, it wasn't lost on me that I was giving up on my dream on the same day that I was probably going blind and a clown had been put to death. <laughs> on my way home, it was a 700-mile drive home, and I stopped at a motel. I had all my shit in the back of my pickup truck. And when I walked into the room, there was a part of me that really felt like, I am never leaving this room. I am going to end it all in here. I've given up on my dreams. I've given up on all the hopes and plans I had for the future. I am a loser. I went to bed that night. I kept the drapes open so I could make sure that no one was going to steal anything out of the back of my truck. And when I woke up the next morning, there were two maids standing next to their cart looking at me like I was a, an exhibit in a museum. And I remember thinking, life is too ridiculous to end it. I drove the rest of the way home. I got to my dad's apartment. I collapsed in his arms. I cried as hard as I've ever cried in my life. He had no idea why. I couldn't articulate it. But I decided I just needed to move on with my life. I worked a number of odd jobs. I loaded pine straw into people's cars. I was the head shake maker at Johnny Rockets, which is not as prestigious as it sounds. I delivered cheesesteaks. I was a secret shopper, which was as close to acting as I could get because someone would call and they would say, put on some glasses, go to Burger King, order a Whopper, ask for no pickles, throw a fit. <laughs> I was terrible at it. At one point I met Julie, my ex-wife now. I was working at a luggage store. I told her my financial plan was to play the same lottery numbers every single week. We had a baby. Then I got a job, and I started to live my life. I got a job actually writing uh, movie trailers. The first movie trailer I ever wrote, and I, I'm name-dropping a lot tonight, so I'll go ahead and say it was the movie Leprechaun 3. <laughs> Which to this date, almost 25 years later, is the most creative writing I've ever done. 
because I had to make 30 seconds about a leprechaun riding around on a tricycle sound exciting. But beyond that, I was really just living my life. I was mowing the lawn, taking care of the baby. Julie and I would watch the Oscars, and she would say, someday that could be you. And each year that that went by, I would say, yeah, but I'm just glad I'm here. But in the back of my mind, there was John Wayne Gacy and a Pringles can looming over me, telling me I'm never going to make it. I used to do drugs. I still do. But I used to, too. (laughs) I took a stand-up class. The assignment within that class, aside from writing your own stand-up routine, was to go see a comedian and come back to class and report on it. And that was the night that changed my life. Seeing Mitch Hedberg. He was relatively unknown, kind of underground. But when I saw him, a switch was flipped. His cadence... His insecurity that was on the surface, his mind, the way he worked, the way he built up things, each joke more brilliant than the last. I couldn't believe what I was watching. It was everything I had really wanted to be. I went home that night and I wrote a campaign for a client of ours in his voice. I had to do it. It was something I had to do. Nobody had asked me to do it at work. But it was for a team called the Atlanta Thrashers, which was the hockey team here in Atlanta. And they were awful. They were never good here. And he was perfect for them because I wrote about how even if the team wasn't good, there was something to love about them. And we called it hockey love. And hockey love was about when your coach is yelling at you, he is not mad. He is just showing you tough hockey love. And when a mascot... A giant bird gives you a free t-shirt. You say, thanks, giant bird. I would like to pet you and feed you some bird seed. All right. I still cannot believe that we sold that campaign. But he was perfect for it. And it was ridiculous. And when we went into the session, I was in Atlanta. He was in L.A. Or he was supposed to be in L.A., But he was an hour and a half late. And I called his agent and I said, where is Mitch? And they said, I don't know. He just called. He said he's on a train. And I said, well, where is he going? They're like, we don't know. He just said he was on a train. Which seemed really appropriate once I got to know him. He gets to the session. And in a first for me, his wife walks into the booth with him. So I was directing the session through his wife. And I'd say, I need him to sound more like Mitch Hedberg. And she'd say, you need to sound more like Mitch Hedberg. And he'd say, I am Mitch Hedberg. (laughs) The engineer on that session would look at me and he'd be like, what the fuck is going on? And I'm like, I don't know, but it sounds great. And it was, to this date, the biggest hit in my career. We sold $2 million in merchandise on Hockey Love. People would call the radio stations and ask them to play the spots, which never happens. I could do no wrong at work. And we worked together for three years after that. We would uh, do radio spots and TV spots. We got him gigs at Phillips Arena, where he would do stand-up routines after the show. And whenever I picked him up, we would talk about stand-up. We would talk about how he got his start and how I got my start and how I didn't finish. We would talk about uh, his view of the world 
how he liked to go to Target or grocery stores to see how people, he felt like people, uh, when they went to the Target or a grocery store, that that's where they were their most natural in public. Like people are watching them, but that's where they are their most natural. And it was so fascinating to me to learn from someone who I really truly viewed as a genius. He was also so insecure. He hated going on morning radio shows because he thought the hosts were making fun of him. After a session once, we were walking out to my car and he said, did I do a good job? And I was like, of course you did a good job. And he's like, well, you should tell people when they did a good job. (laughs) We had success together. It was great, but it was his genius. Every book is a child's book if that child can read. (laughs) It is not lost on me that the biggest laughs come at his jokes. (laughs) In April of 2002, I got an email from Mitch, random, out of the blue, asking me if I wanted to open for him. He was doing a show up at the 40 Watt Club in Athens, Georgia. Everything went through my head in five seconds. I don't have any material. I haven't been on stage in years. I'm the guy that left Chicago because I didn't think I could make it. I have to leave work. I have a kid at home. All valid excuses. And so I emailed back, yeah, I'll be right up. (laughs) I drove up there. I had a notepad and a pencil. I wrote this stand-up set driving up to Athens, Georgia. And when I got there, I thought, I can actually take some time to learn this, or I can have a few drinks. So I had a few drinks. I had several drinks. And backstage, he didn't talk much to me. He was talking to a couple of fans, some other comedians. But I remember when I was walking past him to get on stage, I couldn't get over how surreal this was. This moment, me, opening for the hottest comedian in the country, and I don't have an act. I walked out on stage, and I held up a piece of paper, and I said, I wrote this in the parking lot. And for the next seven or eight minutes, this feeling washed over me, this feeling of calm, this feeling of this is what I was supposed to be doing. It's what I wanted to be. And I killed it. And as I walked off stage, he was getting ready to go on. He was sitting there in his director's chair, and he was wearing uh, sunglasses, and he's smoking a pipe, and he was wearing this leopard print robe. And he stopped me, and he said, I heard your act, and it was good. (laughs) (laughs) On the day he died, it was really weird for me. I got texts and emails from everybody. And for me, it was obviously really sad, but I I just felt like I was just a fan of his like everybody else. But I was getting all of these condolences from people. I hope you're okay. You know, it's going to be okay. You know, and you, you, you move on, right? 
But the one thing I never heard from him, I still wonder why he asked me to do stand-up. What did he know? What did this guy see? This person whose view of the world was different from anybody else. What did he see? Thanks. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Sneaker Pimps behind me now. It's kind of a sad song, but it reminds me so much of that period in time when Mitch Hedberg was so funny. We just heard from Mike Schatz, who you can find on Instagram at Mike Schatz the Sheriff, S-C-H-A-T-Z. And you can always find all of the tables of contents of the episodes at risk-show.com slash listen. The listen pages list all the, you know, the URLs of where you can find the storytellers and the bands. We're even going to have a wiki attached to those pages soon where you can look up the plot summaries for every story ever told in our history. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. Also, if you want to learn more about how to tell stories, go to thestorystudio.org. That's where our video courses and our one-on-one tutorials and our in-person classes in New York and Minneapolis and Los Angeles and our corporate workshops, that is all at thestorystudio.org. Org. Folks, <laughs> today's the day. Take a risk.
right. Last week I helped my friends stay put. It's a lot easier than helping someone move. I just went over to his house and made sure that he did not start to load shit into a truck. You know they call corn on the cob, corn on the cob, right? But that's how it comes out of the ground, man. They should call that corn. They should call every other version corn off the cob. It's not like if you cut off my arm, you would call my arm Mitch. But then reattach it and call it Mitch altogether. Uh, 